Are you intrigued by royalty that happened for many years? The kings and queens that we see many news articles about, like the latest news on Prince Harry and Meghan? That was certainly a buzz for some time. When I think about Disney movies, can't help but name some of the official princesses, which are Snow White, Cinderella, Aurora, Ariel, Belle, Jasmine, or Pocahontas, Mulan, and Rapunzel. These, of course, are all fictional stories of young women and their life-changing experiences of being born in a palace or becoming a princess through marriage. I read a story this past week about a famous golfer who was invited by the king of Saudi Arabia to play in a tournament. He accepted the invitation and the king flew his private jet over to pick up the pro. They played golf for several days and enjoyed a good time. As the golfer was getting ready on the, to get on the plane to return home, the king stopped him and said, I want to give you a gift for coming all this way and making this time so special. Anything you want, what could I give you? Ever the gentleman, the golfer replied, Oh, please don't give me anything. You've been such a gracious host. I've had a wonderful time. I couldn't ask for anything more. But the king was adamant and said, No, I insist on giving you something so you will always remember your journey to our country. When the golfer realized that the king was determined to give him a gift, he said, okay, fine, I collect golf clubs. Why don't you give me a golf club? And the king said graciously, done. He boarded the plane and on his flight home, he couldn't help wondering what kind of golf club the king might give him. He imagined it might be a solid gold putter with his name engraved on it. Or maybe it would be a sand wedge studded with diamonds and, and jewels. After all, this would be a gift from the oil-rich king of Saudi Arabia. When the golfer got home, he checked his mailbox and front steps every day to see if his golf club had arrived. Finally, several weeks later, he received a certified letter from the king of Saudi Arabia. The professional thought it was rather strange. Where's my golf club, he wondered. He opened the envelope and to his surprise, inside he discovered the deed to a 500 acre golf course, not far from his home. The king indeed had given him a golf club, just not the type that he had expected. What is it that intrigues us about watching or interacting as in the case of the golf pro with what a king or queen does? I think it becomes we, because we know that they live a life that is much different from ours, no matter where they are and where they go, they are recognized for who they are, what part they play. Queen Elizabeth, now 95, is the longest reigning monarch, having been Britain's queen for some 69 years. She ascended the throne following the death of her father, King George VI, on February 6, 1952. She stated then, I declare before you that all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. And so we continue to watch her children, her grandchildren and great-grandchildren as they grow older too. So what 
is it that intrigues us about kings and queens? We like to see how they live and go about their everyday life and work in so many different from ours. Their homes and duties take them around the world to meet people where they are. And when they do, they express themselves in ways that show both courage and leadership. Courage to focus on current problems and leaderships as they strive to bring about changes to meet these challenges. Jesus was born to become the King of Kings. Yet his humble beginning didn't reflect this. His parents were young and not from an elite group of leaders. And rather than living in some fancy palace, Jesus became a carpenter in the village he grew up in. He was just one of the boys. But imagine that as time passed and he grew older, he came to understand that he was different, set apart from the others for a purpose. And he, so he prayed earnestly about it. Why him? Why this young man who was just as content to carry on the trade of a carpenter like his father? This was because Jesus was not only human, but God's son. And so we think of Jesus as God made flesh, born of a virgin, living a humble human life until such time when all was ready for his ministry. And when it was, everything changed and changed dramatically. In the reading we hear today from the Gospel of John, we are presented with a time that too was built on the leadership structure of King Herod. Herod died the year Jesus was born and was buried about three miles east of Bethlehem in a massive mountain fort that was surrounded by otherwise flat desert. He wanted people to think of him as powerful and revere him long after he had died. In fact, you can see this massive fort all the way from Ju Jerusalem and from the Mount of Olives. Herod was a nasty piece of business, yet was a powerful leader. His architectural influence is still present in Israel. He built the city of Caesarea on the coast near Tel Aviv. He, he built Masada, and most curiously, he rebuilt the temple. A portion of it survives today the Wailing Wall and the Western Wall. Massive structures were built for the purpose of symbolizing his power and leadership and establishing his legacy. This morning, we find Pilate, who, is one of, who sits in the seat of Roman's power, dressed in his, final, in his regal finery, flanked by soldiers at his attention. Pilate is enjoying his own sort of Wall Street corner office, all thanks to the leadership structure of King Herod. Pilate drums his fingers on the rest of his chair. He's a busy man. He has a lot on his schedule, including meetings with some very important people. He's annoyed that he must deal with this bedraggled carpenter from Galilee who looks about as threatening as Mr. Rogers. This man standing in front of him certainly doesn't look like a king. His clothes are all muddied and torn from being thrown to the ground. His lip is split and his eye is swollen shut where he got whacked by a high priest official. A pretty pathetic sight standing there with his hands bound behind his back. Sure doesn't look like royalty or any sort of threat to the Roman security. However, for some reason, this man, Jesus, has the people of this country all riled up 
which is not good for Pilate, whose main job is to maintain order through whatever means necessary. But there's something else about this scrawny preacher in front of him, something that he can't quite put his finger on. For one thing, he shows no fear whatsoever. Doesn't he realize I could have him killed and wipe out his people with a wave of my hand? On this reign of Christ Sunday, or Christ the King Sunday, this clash of how things are is where we find Jesus. Two worldviews, two understandings of how society should operate, and they are on a collision course, a push and pull for power. You may wonder why in the world we are hearing this story from Good Friday when all around us is now the spirit of coming of Christmas glistens and beckons us on as we begin to have the Advent observances and the buying of gifts for loved ones. This Sunday stands alone though, a kind of hinge between what's known as ordinary time and the season of Advent, Christmas and Epiphany. It's kind of like being suspended between two worlds as we leave one season for the next in anticipation of what is to come when we all begin to long and wait for the birth of Jesus. I can almost picture the story that John presents. Pilate is leaning back in his comfortable chair, high above Jesus. His arms are crossed across his chest, his brows are furrowed, and he stares down at him, thinking to himself, why am I wasting my time with this guy when I have far more important things to be doing? And then with a smirk on his face, he asks, so, you're the king of the Jews or what? I suppose he finds this whole situation amusing. Jesus responds again with no fear. Is this your own idea or did someone else tell you about me? His answer surprises Pilate. This guy is in no position to be cheeky and it takes him aback. Of course someone else has told this to Pilate, because no sane person looking at Jesus would conclude that he was a kingly figure. He has no power, at least none that Pilate would ever understand. Intrigued, he asks, so just what did you do to get everyone so upset? Jesus gives a non-reply. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate scratches his chin as he ponders the attitude of this man. Clearly, he's not a powerful leader or his armies would be fighting at this very moment to secure his freedom. But here he stands, not resisting arrest. In fact, not seeming to resist anything. Pilate responds, so then you are a king. Jesus tells him that those who know the truth Listen to me. Then Pilate poses the question that has echoed throughout history since that day. He asks Jesus, what is the truth? Now, whether Pilate's response was meant to be flippant or thoughtful or even ironic, it is hard to say. But it is an important question because at some point, we all must answer that same question for ourselves. 
What is the truth about our lives? In our world? What is it all about anyway? What I find interesting is there is no recorded answer from Jesus in this text. Maybe Jesus said to himself, you're looking at him. But to the pilots of this world then and now, it's all about power and influence. It's about wealth and making a name for yourself. Our culture today isn't any different. We either see the shows on television or read online about the rich, powerful, and famous, the well-to-do, those who sit in front corner offices on Wall Street or hold great political power. Are we supposed to be envious and want what they have? There's also the issue of the Jewish religious leaders. They had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, and only the Romans could carry out the death penalty. So Jesus is handed over to Pilate with the, with the accusation that he claimed to be a king. If Jesus was found guilty of treason, he would be executed. Soon it would happen. None of which surprised Jesus. So there he stands before Pilate, severely beaten and exhausted looking, like a very unlikely king. Now it appears that there was nobody in Pilate's court taking down testimony that day, and it was highly doubtful that there were any handful of friends of Jesus writing down the whole thing. The story told really reflects the tension facing the community to which Jesus was part of and that John wrote about. The people lived as a minority and amid this Roman power, Jesus was, was standing before the representative of the greatest, most powerful empire the world had ever known to this point. In fact, the Roman Empire still ranks among the world's largest and greatest empires ever. Its influence was enormous. And although this would not always be the case, because the Roman Empire would fall one day, as they all do, up to this point, the Jewish community had suffered from persecution, effectively carried out based on the emperor's empire's understanding of controlled violence. The text we hear this morning, however, invites their allegiance and ours to be a realm whose wisdom and power stands in stark contrast to Rome and its contemporaries. Jesus has great power. But he uses it to reach out to others with love and mercy. So whose voice will you listen to? Whose way will you follow? Whose kingdom will you find your home in? Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus didn't respond directly to Pilate's question. Instead, he tried to impress upon Pilate that his kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is unlike anything that the people of the day thought of as a kingdom. Certainly, Jesus did not fit the expected role of a king. He had no history of being a mighty warrior. He did not lead a great army. He had little to no wealth. But Pilate kept pushing him and asked again, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. So 
what is the truth of this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and enacted in this time on earth? And how did he get this place where his kingdom is on trial? To answer this, we cannot understand Jesus without considering the context of the time. Jesus was born during the increased Roman presence in the Jewish area of Galilee and Judea. In only one generation, Rome came to nominate both. There is little doubt that when Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God, he was asking, how would this world be run if God sat on Caesar's throne? This, of course, was treason, and it drew attention, but it also brought, brought a charge of blasphemy, which is why he stands before Pilate. Jesus' teachings was rooted in the understanding of a God of love and justice, whose compassion for others was life toward God's kingdom, he spoke of. Jesus was part of the tradition of biblical leaders who protected, protested against systematic injustice of the kingdoms that dominated their lives. They did not did so in the name of God and on behalf of the victims. Slaves in Egypt, exiles in Babylon, exploited peasants in the time of the monarchy, and again in the time of Jesus, and the most vulnerable in all times. Widows, orphans, the poor, the immigrants. So for the early Christians, they were faced with which power was in charge of the world. Who's the boss? Was it Caesar and his army? Or was it God? Jesus? For the early Christians, it was clearly Jesus. And many died for this belief. The kingdom of God is not just a vision, but program. Not just an idea, but a lifestyle. The kingdom was about God's will for the earth. Sometimes it has a mystical meaning of God's presence among us. But when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, his audience would also have heard the contrast between God's kingdom and the kingdom of kingdoms of Herod and Caesar. He invites them to imagine what the world would look like if God were king and the rulers of this earth were not. It was not military confrontation. It was not, it was nonviolent resistance. Yet it surely confronted the present economic, social, and political realities. And this idea of sweeping change for Rome and the Jewish religious leaders made Jesus very dangerous. The kingdom Jesus spoke truth about was one of feeding the 5,000, sharing food and clothing. It was healing and honoring the lost, the last and the least. It was about speaking of the coming of the Spirit both into individual lives and into the world, creating new life. And it was about drawing into the way that Jesus taught and lived. We too are called to live each day into two worlds, two realities, two kingdoms. We are called by God to struggle with the world we see all around us, to be active participants in making it a better place for everyone. We are called to plunge into the secular now, to dive into the messiness that is this world. We are called to get into it up to our necks and represent this, the will of God as Jesus did. Once a village blacksmith had a vision 
an angel of the Lord came to him and said, The Lord has sent me. The time has come for you to take up your place in his kingdom. I thank God for thinking of me, said the blacksmith. But as you know, the, the season for sowing crops and will soon be here. The people of the village will need their plows repaired and their horses shoed. I don't wish to seem ungrateful, but do you think I might put off my place in the kingdom until I have finished? The angel looked at him in a, the wise and loving ways of angels and said, I'll see what I can do, then vanished. The blacksmith continued with his work and was almost finished when he heard the, that a neighbor had fell ill in the middle of the planting season. When the angel appeared again, the blacksmith pointed towards the neighbor's field and pleaded with the angel, do you think eternity can hold off just a little longer? If I don't help my friend, his family will suffer. Again, the angel smiled and vanished. With the blacksmith's help, his friend eventually recovered, but then another's barn burnt down, and a third was deep in sorrow after the death of his wife and a fourth, and so on, and so on. Whenever the angel reappeared, the blacksmith just spread out his hands in a gesture of resignation and compassion and drew the angel's eyes to where the suffering was and how he had to help those in need. One evening, the blacksmith began to think of the angel and how he'd put him off for such a long time. By now, he was quite old and, and felt very tired. And so we prayed, Lord, if you would send your angel again, I think I'd like to see him now. He'd no sooner spoken than the angel stood before him. If you'd like me to go with you, said the blacksmith, I'm now ready to take up my place in the kingdom of the Lord. The angel of the Lord looked at the blacksmith and smiled and said, where do you think you've been all these years? God has loved this world passionately and completely. And in Jesus has given every ounce of God's self to us and for us. As God's people, we are in turn to give ourselves away. The same kind of love, one loaf of bread, one cup of water, one pair of warm socks, one friendly face-to-face -face encounter at a time. And so let us celebrate Christ the King, the true King, today, not because of his power, but because of his humility, not because of his divine royalty, but because of his compassion, not because he fixes our lives, but because he shows us the way to live by fixing others. May it be so. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the embrace of your love, your unfailing faithfulness and kindness, for your care, protection, and provision, for the blessed assurance that you continue to actively work in this world, working through the actions of each of us. Amen. And at this time, we will be celebrating together the celebration of communion. I invite you now to pause your service and to get your bread or your crackers and your juice 
as we will gather now at the table, a table that is open to all. Let us celebrate together.